This is the title of an article written by our next guest at theconversation.com, and it's certainly something that Canadians in literally every corner of this country are talking about this weekend. It's a pleasure to welcome Professor Alison Braley-Rattai from the Law School at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, to the program this morning. Professor Braley-Rattai, Alison, good morning and welcome. Uh, good morning. Uh, quick correction, there is no law school at Brock University. I do teach law, though, in the Labor Studies Department at oh, Brock University. All right, there you go. Labor yeah. law was where I was headed with this one. Yes. And, and the short answer, can vaccinations be mandated? So the, if the short answer is yes, that means labor law in most Canadian provinces accommodates this reality then. Well, you know, there is one correct answer to every legal question I always tell my students, and the correct answer is, it depends. So uh, the short answer is yes. I had suggested to the conversation that we should make the short answer, mm, maybe. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, they didn't think that that was, uh, you know, quite as punchy. Uh, and so I guess what I would say is, I'm saying very much what I think, you know, the general commentary is out there by, you know, law people and, and people who are interested and knowledgeable about this question, which is that um, it's not obvious that those icebergs that are, you know, put up in certain, you know, terms of certain considerations that employers would have to take into account or that even governments would have to take into account it's not obvious that they can't be navigated so that's why the short answer is yes but of course it really does depend on a whole bunch of of specifics okay well let's start with why the short answer is yes and we'll work through the the exceptions exemptions and other reasons why it perhaps is is as you say it depends really but the short answer is yes because as you point out uh there is a, a a duty or an obligation on the part of any employer anywhere to provide a safe working environment for those employees correct Absolutely. And I think, you know, we can even take one step further back, which is to say, you know, the conditions here are, of course, unprecedented. We've never had a global pandemic um, such as this. The closest comparator we have is maybe the 1918 Spanish flu. Right. But in 1918, you know, we didn't have human rights legislation. We didn't have labor law as such. We didn't have tribunals. We didn't have the charter. Um, we had barely occupational health and safety legislation. So any decisions um, that have been made pursuant to any of those pieces of legislation or the charter or general principles of labor law as they've developed over the last 75 years, none of them have been made in the context of a global pandemic that has killed you know, hundreds of thousands and has shut down the economy, not just in Canada, but of course across the world. Mm-hmm. And so that is a major consideration. And, you know, we don't have a global, you know, uh, uh, crystal ball. Uh, so we have to you know, extract what we think are relevant principles and try to apply them, but in a context that is really quite novel, which is on one hand, the pandemic, which is, you know, completely novel. And on the other hand, the fact of the fact of vaccine mandates, which are extraordinarily rare anyway, mm. we have very few examples of attempts by either government or uh, employers to mandate vaccines. We have some, and we can try to sort of draw upon those, but even those contexts were different. They weren't, you know, in the context of a pandemic, and of course, you know, they weren't, um, you know, subject to the particulars of COVID, Mm -hmm. which of course is much more deadly than a lot of the other kinds of things, like seasonal flu 
that we might have otherwise been considering when we were looking at, you know, attempts at mandating vaccines in certain workplaces and so forth. So I guess what I'm saying is the short answer is yes, because it's not obvious that in this pandemic new world, um, there isn't in fact a responsibility to ensure that in certain, you know, contexts that people are vaccinated, particularly if you think about places like long-term care homes. Of course. Where we know it is run rampant, where we know that, you know, you know deaths associated are extremely high. Um, you know, those are the kinds of places in particular where we might turn, turn our attention. So that's why short answer, yes. And, of course, all these caveats. Okay. Now, there are some of us, Allison, who are listening in on this conversation who are old enough to be able to remember another time uh, back in the 1950s, for example, when there was another Mm -hmm. vaccine reality that we all had to deal with. In those days, it was polio. It was measles, Mm -hmm. mumps, uh, chicken pox, and, of course, polio. And in those days, and it's uh, more than a few weeks ago, but in those days, if you were not vaccinated, you were not allowed to go to school. Now, that was a a pretty severe, uh, but very firm and clear line drawn. Is there a possibility that that condition could evolve out of COVID? Well, it's possible. But again, I think certain things are, are important to keep in mind. So when we look at, for instance, school entry vaccination laws and currently so if we're looking at you know not 1950s but sort of the post-charter era and the post-human rights era Mm -hmm. and you know the sort of present frameworks in which we would make these kinds of decisions um there are a few jurisdictions bc being the most recent of them uh new brunswick being another and ontario being another where there are some laws around vaccination for school entry, for instance, which of course would have been important in terms of polio and measles and so forth and so on. But they are not mandatory. And the reason I say they're not mandatory, although they're often called mandatory, I think that's misleading, because of course they allow easily obtained exemptions for any reason. Mm -hmm. So once you can allow someone to be exempt for any reason, then you no longer have a mandatory policy. So, you know, that's one thing that we might want to consider, that we don't actually have a template currently for the kind of mandate that I'm talking about. But aside from that, there are differences, of course, around COVID vis-a-vis things like polio and measles, because children in particular, uh, although they're good carriers of COVID, they are not generally the worst hit by it when they get sick. True. As opposed to something like measles, where we know it has a quite bad effect on, on children if they actually get sick, or it can have a very bad effect on children if they get sick. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of distinctions also would be, you know, would be necessarily in play when you're looking at something like the reality of mandating vaccines, even for school entry, in terms of COVID. It's not impossible. Um, but there would be, you know, those kinds of, that's the way people would, I think, think these things through in terms of those kinds of differences and whether we actually have a template right now, which I would argue we actually don't. Alison bailey Ratai is our guest, joining us from Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. Uh, Alison recently wrote an article entitled, Can COVID-19 Vaccinations Be Mandated? Short answer, yes. That, when you write an article, you don't write the headline. That's somebody else's job. Alison would have preferred the headline writer to write, short answer, it depends. <laughs> Alison, we were talking about, let's just take a look at workplace the workplaces situations that might be 
confusing to the employees and possibly even to the law. Suppose now two workers for the same company receive a notification from the boss. Going forward, all employees of this company are going to be required to be vaccinated against COVID-19. One of the employees who receives this notification works in the shop every day. The other employee hasn't been in the shop for six months and is doing a very successful work from home uh, contribution to the company. Are those peak people, given their work realities, equally compelled to get that shot? Well, you know, again, I hate, and this is why people hate, like, law stuff and law people, because the answer is, you know, it depends. There are things we don't know in this scenario. Um, so I'll just start with some general comments and then try to move in a little bit. Okay. Um, you know, whether you're in a unionized environment or a non-union environment, non-unionized environment, that matters also mm-hmm. to this question. Um, and, you know, what kind of workplace you're in might come to matter at some point as well if, you know, someone actually tries to challenge this directive, as it were, from the employer. But I think what you're trying to get at um, is around the consideration of human rights legislation, which I know that, you know, a lot of commentary about this question has focused at least, not exclusively certainly, but at least, you know, a fair amount on this question of when people can be accommodated when there is an employer directive that violates a protected human rights ground in the legislation that exists in every jurisdiction. Every Mm -hmm. jurisdiction has human rights legislation. They're very similar across jurisdictions, and they're adjudicated very similarly. Different in some ways, but very, very similar. So, I mean, if you're going to say, you know, I'm working from home, um, I don't want to take this, uh, you know, this vaccine. I mean, the employer is in a position to do one of two things. In the first place, they're in the position to say, well, you know, you're working from home anyway. Uh, you know, I'm okay with that. Yeah. So, you know, Bob's your uncle, keep going. But let's say the employer goes, well, you know what? I don't want you working from home anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I want you to come in. You know, things are different now, and you, you don't have a right to work from home. So I want you to come in. And the person goes, well, if I come in, I'm not going to take this vaccine. And the employer goes, well, you know, you have to. Then the question becomes, do they have some kind of human rights-based ground to say, I don't want to take the vaccine? And if they don't, then it doesn't matter that they were working from home and can do so successfully. Um, if they do have a valid human rights ground, then it might very well be that the employer will have to let them work from home because they've already demonstrated that it's quite possible. So it's not clear why it would now not be possible. Right. But I think the important linchpin is that they have to have a valid ground that's you know enumerated in the relevant legislation. Yeah. They can't just I don't want to do it. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, then you don't have to. Right. And, and uh, so two things. Uh, first of all, I agree with you, Allison. I think the workplace, the working from home phenomenon that has been, that has evolved out of this whole pandemic is, uh, is certainly working for some, not for all. And I think down the road, we're going to see not necessarily a 100% return to the workplace, but a significant return uh, of the working population to our workplace versus work from home. And second, Secondly, uh, what would what would constitute reasonable grounds for refusing? Well, I think that's probably the most interesting question here, because the most common grounds, and these are grounds in every jurisdiction, are disability. So if you had a medical condition well, sure. that prevented okay. you, it would count as a disability. That's dead nuts easy. Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a religious-based objection. And there are some people who could make a valid claim that there's a religious-based objection. 
And then if they could demonstrate that it was valid, then the conversation would turn to, well, can we accommodate you? And one of those ways might be to send you back home. Um, So that's not impossible. But absent that, there aren't a lot of obvious grounds in human rights legislation that map on here. So, for instance, people who have, you know, what we might generously call, you know, philosophical or conscientious-based objections are not obviously protected in the human rights legislation. And the reason I say not obviously protected is because there are some jurisdictions that protect on the basis of political belief, D.C. being one of them. Mm. So I was thinking this through the other day, going, is it possible that someone could make a claim that, okay, it's not a matter of conscience, that you think big pharma and you know the government are in cahoots, right? Sure, <laughs> to yeah. You get that, you know, but it might be a political uh, belief. I think that would be a disastrous decision, by the way, for all sorts of reasons. Um, but it's not impossible. I don't think it would go there because I think it's fundamentally a recipe for actually undoing the entire human rights system because you'd basically be saying any reason counts, right? Um, so I don't think that political belief would be interpreted that broadly, and so far in those jurisdictions where it exists, it tends not to be interpreted that broadly. Right, you wouldn't be too shocked. Never had this case. Yeah, but I was just going to say, you wouldn't be too shocked if somebody took a run at it, would you? Well, I wouldn't be shocked. <laughs> uh, I would like to think that they would be disappointed, uh, because like I said, it would undo the entire uh, you know, the premise of human rights legislation, which is that some reasons are more valid because they are related to certain kinds of things that yeah. are fundamental to our humanity. And if we basically make any opinion a a political one, and in some ways all opinions are political, Mm -hmm. kind of a very broad uh, way of understanding it. But if we broadened it that much, we'd be kind of saying that every opinion deserves the sort of sacrosanct sacrosanct protection of human rights legislation, which would be, I think, fundamentally disastrous. Allison, you Uh, mentioned... uh, There you are. Sorry, you mentioned also there would be a distinction in the way such a directive might be implemented if the workplace is unionized versus non-unionized. How would that how would that apply? Well, you are dealing with fundamentally different frameworks. So, although human rights legislation also applies in the unionized workplace, it applies, it applies across the board: unionized, not unionized, private, public sector. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but there is a whole framework. Um, to deal with issues in a unionized workplace that is fundamentally different from how any issues are dealt with in the non-unionized environment. And my, my view is that, um, I mean, some of the, the cases we have seen, there's been one about mandatory COVID testing, mm-hmm. which uh, was just uh, found to be a reasonable policy by an arbitrator here in Ontario. And there are a few other cases around seasonal flu vaccination comparable in some ways, but very different in others. And some of them have been upheld as reasonable, and some of, them, some of them have not been. But the important point, I think, is that in a unionized workplace, there's a whole framework through which you can challenge an employer policy. Uh, and then there's a whole analysis about whether you know, all things considered, you know, it's reasonable or not. Um, and I think what we're going to see, if we see any of these kinds of policies, they're most likely going to come from retirement home, healthcare sector, that sort of thing. And they're probably largely going to be in the context of a unionized environment um, because a lot of well, healthcare in general, a lot of it is. Sure. Um, and then I think we will start to see how all these things that I've been talking about start to map onto actual facts on the ground. Mm-hmm. And that will give us a much better sense 
of where the direction is on something like uh, a mandate in an employment situation. Yes. Uh, so, Professor Bailey Bataille, let's, let's, let's just boil this down to one final thought, if I can get it from you, Allison, and that's that you talk about persuasion or mandates uh, in, mm-hmm. in the final p- portion of your article. Um, are we going to be able to get through this with persuasion, effective persuasion by credible people, or are we going to, we're going to have to fall back on mandates? Well, I think that the one thing that we have learned over the last handful of years um, is that there is a robust movement to question authority and a robust movement. I mean, questioning authority is good up to a point, And then, of course, it just becomes I'm not listening to things that I don't like. Yeah. Um, I think we will see, uh, you know, if anything in the way of a mandate comes down the pike, we will see, I think, some concerted resistance, particularly on the part of fairly well-funded and organized, uh, you know, organizations Mm -hmm. in in some cases. Um, But I think, you know, if it had to boil down to sort of a a final thought, it's that I have been concerned about the fact that, you know, there doesn't seem to be a campaign in place to start to persuade people. And the one thing that we know from, there's been a fair amount of literature written on this question of how to persuade people. And the one thing that we do know is that facts and figures don't cut it. People need to relate to it on a much more visceral level. Sure, you so bet. I think what we need are like commercials with real healthcare people, you know, talking about what it's like to be the only person in a hospital room while some elderly person mm-hmm. dies alone yeah. in a diaper upside down while being intubated. And that might be the kind of persuasive message that we actually need. Indeed. Alison Brady Ratai, thank you so much for your article and this, uh, this conversation as well. It's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, I look forward to the opportunity to have another conversation with you, Alison. After this, after the new year, we'll get past all the festivities and the rest of it, such as they're going to be. And then we'll mm-hmm. look and we'll take a look in a few weeks, if you don't mind, at how this whole implementation, because we've got a half a million coming in January. We know that now. And obviously more on the way. So can we get together in maybe six weeks or so and talk about how it's how it's shaking out across the country and, and perhaps identify and zoom in on some of those islands of ob- objection? Absolutely. Happy to do it anytime. Have a great holiday season. We'll talk to you in a few weeks. Thank you very much. Same to you. Our pleasure entirely. There's Professor Allison Braley Ratai, who teaches labor law at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. It's a pleasure to welcome Brent Paulington back to the show. Brent is a Vancouver owner with Express Employment Professionals, here to talk to us about a new Harris poll about the impact of, of COVID-19 on the workplace, particularly dealing with sustained unemployment. Brent Paulington, good morning. Welcome back, sir. Good morning. Thanks for having me. It's okay. Good to have you back, Brent. Just before we uh, get into the nuts and bolts of this Harris Poll survey, uh, how about you? On a very personal level, Mr. P, are you hoping for snow this Christmas? Yeah, I'm not afraid of doing some shoveling, and I absolutely would love to see some snow, but the picture you painted of the sustained snow for two months, maybe I'd regret that uh, if the snow if the sto- uh, snow stuck around for a while. <laughs> That's right. Once it comes to the problem is you just don't know when it's going to go away. Now, Vancouver, yeah, typically, right. typically in Vancouver, it snows, and within 48 hours, it, it rains away. But then, sometimes it doesn't. Brad, it's great to have you back. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about this poll. I know that you, uh, you commissioned it in October. 
October and uh, talked to a lot of Canadians all over the country about the impact of uh, of COVID-19 on unemployed Canadians. So tell us why you did the survey, and then we'll talk about some of the things you've discovered. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think... Uh uh, one of the things that stood out to me early is that uh, Canadian workers have been hit really hard. I mean, in the last discussions we've had over the last number of months, we've talked about the things that both employees and employers can do. But, uh, you know, this poll said 65% of the people that are currently unemployed are looking for work in different fields. 55% are open to jobs with lower pay. and uh, 51% just looking for jobs that'll help them pay the bills. Um, you know, 42 open to more junior positions. Uh, so there's there's a lot of people out there that have been displaced mm-hmm. that are, uh, you know, absolutely been terribly impacted by this and that are trying to find work. And there are tons of different uh, either sectors or industries, and it could be based on, on where they live and the, the city they live in or whatever it may be. But there are tons of people that have been hit really hard by this uh, who have done the things that you know, in past conversations, maybe we said are, are things you could be doing as a job seeker. Sure. There's lots of people who are doing everything they could and still are being terribly impacted by this. Indeed. So, Brent, as you went through the the, the survey and talked to Canadians uh, about all of this, how long, for example, when you were talking to people, especially people who have been unemployed, what is the sort of typical length of job displacement now? Because this is a survey was done just a couple of months ago. Yeah, yeah. I um you know, I don't know if there's necessarily like a specific answer there, but I I know that the survey talked about people who are currently employed and kind of talked about the runway that they have. Uh and you know, I think twenty four percent of the people in the poll said that they have no savings whatsoever mm-hmm. and in a position right now where they, you know, are living off the uh you know, benefits provided by the government. Sure. Uh, and then 48% of people, which I thought was interesting, say that they have less than six months uh, where they're going to be in a really, really tough position. And that puts really, really difficult strain, never mind the time of the year we're in right now, which obviously adds additional strain to that. Um, but I think it's just, it, it makes it really difficult. I mean, a lot of people in the poll responded saying that, uh, as of course we would probably assume that uh, being unemployed uh, is really, really stressful, but 70% of the respondents said that they're becoming extremely discouraged. Uh, 62 were saying that they feel extremely desperate. Um, and 54% are, are, are getting angry about being unemployed, where they, again, feel like they're, you know, they're taking action and, and, and trying to take steps and, and, and just that the market is one that's not easy for the job seeker right now. And it's become very difficult. And you're also talking about people and two people, Brent, who have been unemployed now for a significant period of time. That's what I was trying to get at earlier with a, a poorly asked question. But really, mm. uh, uh, these people, some of these people have been out of work for quite a while. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, uh, we, we've seen people that have been unemployed since, you know, the first, especially in BC where we are, where the first uh, shutdowns happened in, in kind of early March and, mm-hmm. and people who have been displaced from their field or sector and, you know, have been open to, to, to change and just haven't been able to either find a role or the employers out there, 
you know, view their experience in another field as one where as soon as that job that's ideal for them becomes available is enough to disincentivize that employer to hire someone and take that risk. Yeah, Brent, you were talking about people who were uh, in many cases, not all, but in many cases able to at least keep their nose above water uh, because of the benefit packages that have been arranged for or by the Canadian government, whether it's the wage subsidy or the CERB or a similar uh, benefits. Are though are there, though, in the survey, did you talk to people who, for whatever reason, aren't getting any benefits? Hmm. Yeah, I, I haven't come across that. Uh, I didn't see anything mentioned that in the survey. Well, that's a good uh, thing. I mean, it's not a bad thing, Brent, yeah. because it means it, yeah. it means if that's the case, then most people who should be receiving benefits are. What what I was, again, digging around for was uh, looking for a, a, any kind of significant measurable number of people who weren't, who had fallen between the cracks. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, that's a great question. I haven't thought of that myself, but it's not something where we've uh, you know, I, I haven't heard that in my office. Well, that's People good, though. Saying, hey, I need this. But yeah, 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 yeah. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the the anger factor because you know there it, it's there uh, you you can hear it every now and then and you're talking about of course this time of year being that uh, that sort of emotional peak for so many that adds uh, a lot of stress to uh, a, a situation in which is uh, people are already feeling pretty uh, uh, un, uh, overwhelmed uh, so uh, again there the, the reaction out of frustration, in some cases, is anger, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I really empathize with a lot of people. There are people who, you know, followed the path, who, you know, did the post-secondary thing, who, you know, got a great job with a great employer and rose through the ranks and continued to do the, the personal and career development, who have been displaced and who are in a position where they are looking at having to go and start all over again. Yeah. You know, like just a just a very demoralizing situation to to go through, and 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 whether whether you did the schooling or whether it was on the job training, like there have just been people that have you know made good choices and done the things that you know I guess from a hypothetical perspective we'd say these are all the things you could or should do uh, to be a good employee or a good job seeker, and have still you know been been negatively impacted just as the employers have. Like it's it goes both ways. Oh like sure, companies uh, companies have done the same thing where they've you know, hired great people and, and put their employees first and done training and all these different things and then been hit by this and been been unable to, you know, to do the things they want to do and keep their employees. Like, it's it's been really tough. Uh, you know, we, we, we see uh, both sides in our company, and, and I, I feel like we're a bit of a barometer because we work with such a broad group of businesses sure. and, and, and individuals. And, and, you know, I think the toughest thing is that the, the companies that have survived are the ones that have been able to innovate. But there's a lot of companies who tried and who have who have really tried to figure it out and who have, you know, put themselves last and tried to keep their people employed. Yep. And and it's put a huge strain on on both the job seeker and and the uh, or the worker or the employee and, and the business. It's been hard for everybody for mm. sure. Joined on the line by Brent Pollington from Express Employment Professionals. They just commissioned a new Harris poll uh, quite recently. The the uh, findings: COVID nineteen pandemic having severe impacts on unemployed Canadians. And Brent, we talked about uh, just before the break. COVID nineteen has not just resulted in more people looking for fewer jobs. It has made finding a job more difficult in many other ways flesh that out for us if you would please yeah absolutely uh one of the things that i try to help employers or uh, job seekers with is kind of four different things 
that are critical for, for someone to be an expert in their field. Product knowledge is number one. Aptitude is number two. Skill is number three. And motivation is number four. Uh-huh. Someone who's got a lot of product knowledge and skill uh, in a particular industry or field uh, doesn't necessarily bring that same value somewhere else. However, aptitude and motivation are transferable. Right. And so I think the challenge is that someone who is you know, looking at a different field, you know, the, the, the survey said 65% of people are looking in a different field. Uh, the challenge is for that employer that they may not bring that same value. And so, yes, there are less jobs in the market right now. However, we are seeing a really nice pickup. November, uh, October, uh, and, and December have been up for us over last year. So we are starting to see a resurgence in the, in, in the job market. Uh, however, you know, the skills that someone may have, have earned or gained through their, their experience, through the, the companies work with may not necessarily be ones that are transferable. And so that's where that challenge is of helping an employer see that you do have that aptitude, that you're motivated. Uh, ultimately, I think like the biggest thing people, you know, could hopefully be open to is just a great opportunity. And, and you know, the survey does say that people are open to, you know, accepting jobs at a lower pay, right. uh, that are a more junior position, that don't have benefits, you know, I think the challenge for employers is uh, hiring somebody where there is a good perception that the person is not going to stick around as soon as things turn around mm-hmm. and as soon as their job becomes available. But that may be a shift that the employer needs to, to make is that maybe the jobs aren't actually going to be available. The person truly is looking to make a change and you could get a great hire, but it does put increased risk and fear that you're going to make a hire, make a huge investment. And then as soon as that job comes back available, that the person is going to leave. Yeah, and it's it is a challenge for the employer, isn't it? Because it's an investment to hire a new person and and train them up and get them up to the point where they actually add value and and productivity to whatever you're up to. I'm just looking at uh, the the job search uh, widening on the part of many people who are still looking. And as you mentioned, they're looking for jobs in a different field. That's two thirds of them, Brent. Uh, also, over half of them quite willing to uh, take a job with lower pay. Um, almost half saying they'd accept a job, any job that helps pay the bills, including, in the case of 40%, a more junior position. It's work, for crying out loud. It's cash flow, right? Yeah, and and, and you touched on something really interesting there that I I try to help both the employer and the employee understand, which is you take, a let's say, a 50,000-year salary, uh, and you take the first uh, six months of that of, of training, onboarding, development, that's a $25,000 cost to the company. Mm-hmm. Plus, you've got your CPP, EI, WCB, so you're talking closer to 30000 Then you've got all the soft costs of the company training, onboarding, and developing that person. You've got the lost opportunity cost, especially of a small business where if the owner is the person who's training, it's taking them away from, from sales and, and development opportunities. That's right. Those costs to the company can, can double and triple of what just the salary cost is alone. So, you know, it could be anywhere from from that thirty, forty to $75,000 for a company to invest, how long does it take them to get that return? And so that's like, that's a calculation that goes through the small business owner's head when they're looking at hiring that next employee. And if there is any fear that this person isn't going to stick around for that six months or year, or even two, three, four, five years, we, we get requests all the time from companies that are looking to hire for us saying, I want to hire someone and I want them to stay around for a minimum of five years. Right. And, and I mean, we'll, we'll ask all the questions we can, but it seems like in this day and age, I think I read a survey or a poll the other day that said the average tenure in Canada is about two and a half years, and that was pre-COVID. Uh, and, and so it just, it just makes... It makes things really difficult for both the employee to, to be able to convey 
a, a statement or, or a scenario to to the employer to say, hey, I'm actually, you know, I, I'm totally looking for a change. I'm looking for a great opportunity. I'm looking for a great company. I will stick around. And that's all great. It sounds good and dandy, but then is the employer willing to truly take that at face value and take that what could be a 75000 or plus? I mean, that was a, a $50,000 position, $25 an hour we're talking about. I mean, what if the position's a $100,000 position sure. or... You know, like it, it just it just amplifies. It's 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 definitely challenging for both sides. Well, it'd be uh, it, it would behoove someone looking for a job, Brent, to sit down with a professional like yourself and go through some of the smart things to say and best ways to express yourself to a prospective employer to allay some of those concerns that they have. How do people find you? Yeah, absolutely. Express Employment uh, Professionals Vancouver, uh, and absolutely, if anybody, uh, there's a contact us page. If anybody's looking for help uh, with their job search and just looking for advice or information, feel free to add that note in there and one of our team members would be happy to reach out. If it's an employer looking for for insight, we don't expect that every time we speak with someone that we're going to ring a sale through our till, so to speak. If if there's a way we can be a a resource or or just provide some guidance, uh, we're absolutely happy to do that with anybody. Excellent. Express Employment Professionals, Google it and uh, call them up. They can help you out. Brent, thanks for all of this. We do appreciate your professional insight into this tough time we're going through. Uh, We'll look forward to speaking to you again in the new year. And in the meantime, from Julie and Andrew and me to you and yours, a very Merry Christmas and our sincere thanks. Awesome. Thanks to you. Time to take a look at some real estate predictions. It is the year end, and of course, everyone in the business is being tapped for an opinion. And so as a result, we've got quite the quite the collection of opinions out there with respect to where real estate might go in 2021. Uh, and the, the opinions are, in fact, conflicting from many. So we thought we'd get to uh, one of the more credible sources for real estate in Western Canada, our old friend Elton Ash, joining us from Kelowna. Mr. Ash is the Regional Executive Vice President for Remax Western Canada and is uh, a welcome guest on this show at any time. Elton, good morning. Compliments of the season. Welcome back. Best of the season to you as well, Sterling. So lots of confusion out there from the point of view, Elton, of, 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 of the unknowns. Here's what we do know. We do know that interest rates are at historic lows and likely to remain there for quite some time. We also know there is a pandemic at play that is likely going to keep us confined under some pretty rigid restrictions for an extended period of time still. And yet there is this incredible pent-up demand because people have not been able to get out and get into the marketplace and do as much real estate activity as they once used to. And, of course, there's this incredible uncertainty as to where prices might go. So uh, let's let's take a look at, at what your uh, perspective is on, on, on the different types of housing, because this is where it gets a little crazy. For example, with COVID, uh, a lot of people, Elton, say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, I don't want to live in a condo anymore with 400 neighbors and uh, worries of elevators and all of those grimy things that covid brings so now i'm going to find myself a little place with some dirt in the burbs uh that trend has started to pick up what are you hearing about that well exactly it sterling you know you're working at home remotely you've got the kids at home as well and suddenly the ideal home that you thought you had isn't as ideal you need a little more room Mm -hmm. and that's exactly what's going on so with that, uh, the price uh, with demand always comes increase in prices. So is it pretty safe to assume that that particular area, and we're talking Metro Vancouver, the lower mainland mostly, uh, is it safe to assume that that area, which is still very strong, is going to stay strong? 
Well, certainly, as we look over this past year, we've seen a, a, an over an 8% increase in pricing. We've seen unit sales increase by 23%. And this is during COVID, yeah. which, which you also have to understand, there's a real lack of inventory because as buyers have, have been having trouble getting out, sellers have been concerned about safety mm-hmm. around you know having people come into their home even though there's more virtual tools being used and allowing people to see the home without actually having to go into That's it. That's right. But uh, reduced inventory levels are having a huge effect on pricing. And with this consistent demand that we're seeing, um, not just in the, the lower mainland, but nationally across the entire continent, it, uh, this phenomenon is going to continue. And so as we look forward through to 21, we're conservatively predicting a 4% price increase for the Lower Mainland. Is that for single-family detached homes, Elton, or right across the board? That's right across the board. So we'll see detached homes uh, with a higher increase, and condominiums, because there is more inventory mm-hmm. available, not as great an increase. So we're probably looking at the single-family residential in the seven percent increase in condominiums slightly less probably two three percent right now and, and that interestingly contrasts with a city like toronto for example where there is a glut of condominiums on the marketplace and even more coming on in 2021 to the point where some of those developers are concerned that they will not lose but that they're not going to see the kinds of increases that you're confident predicting for vancouver so why why are you more comfortable with uh, predicting increase even minimal increases with condo prices, where so many others are saying, nah, they've, they've seen better times. Well, when, we were, when I was in Toronto a year and a half ago for business meetings, the, top, the, uh, the cranes that were up, you know, was reminiscent of Vancouver back in the early 2000s. Right. But the, uh, and that is exactly a situation for a city like Toronto, whereas Vancouver doesn't have that same inventory. Uh, demand is still staying relatively strong in the condos, although not as strong as detached, but uh, it's not going to be as dire for the city of Vancouver at all. All right, so let's. Uh, you're in Kelowna, and so let's uh, step back, and when you always afford us the opportunity to take a look at the big picture of British Columbia. So you're in one of the most in-demand recreational areas in the entire country, the Okanagan. So take a look at that part of British Columbia, and maybe even a, a gander over to the island as well, where lots of listeners are tuned in this morning, Elton. Well, holy cow, if you look at the Okanagan, I mean, unit sales are up 68% this year, if you, if you could year over year, if you can believe it. It's just amazing. Although prices uh, have only gone up nearly 10%. It, uh, it's been a phenomenal market. So we're going to see that continue through the year into 21, where there's going to be increased prices again in that 4 to 6% range. Mm-hmm. Uh, we look at uh, Vancouver Island, unit sales up 70%, prices up 9% year over year. And so, again, it's going to be in that same range. We're being a little bit cautious because we also understand that COVID, this pent-up demand that we saw, you know, through the spring, through the summer, it has been abated somewhat. So 21 won't be as crazy a year. But, uh, but yeah, the Vancouver Island is still going to see in that 4 to 6% range like the rest of the province. 
So again, I suppose the downside of all of this is if you're a young person looking to get into the housing game for the first time, again, in the Metro Vancouver area, Elton, the the affordability factor is still going to be just a little out of reach for a lot of young wannabe homeowners. Affordability hasn't changed, unfortunately, and that is something that... uh our, our relatively newly elected government uh, in the province is going to have to take much more seriously. I mean, they've tried a few things, but uh, as a minority government, but certainly now, hopefully with uh, a little more strength in the legislature, they can, they can look at affordability, although the so-called vacancy tax isn't really going to address the issue. It's mm-hmm. a supply-side issue that yeah. has to be looked at seriously, along with the municipalities. And as for those people who are would-be buyers who are putting together their resolutions for 2021, and and one of them is that long-postponed real estate purchase is going to become a reality. And yet, nobody is even slightly interested in going to look at said long-postponed property on account of, well, a pandemic. So we need to let people know how the real estate industry has pivoted to deal with this reality, Eldon. Fill us in. Well, that's exactly the situation, and, and realtors are, are late adopters when it comes to technology. Well, COVID has really forced the adoption of the virtual tours, and, and so that's where the industry has really changed. Plus, you know, signing documents virtually using tools such as DocuSign sure. or AuthentiSign. And so it, it enables the ability for people to, instead of looking at perhaps 10 to 12 homes in person, you can look at 25, 30 homes virtually, narrow it down to two homes, Mm -hmm. and then go look at those two homes with your realtor and and get a good idea because you still have to walk through the home. Although we've seen many instances this year right across the country of homes selling with people never physically stepping into them until they get the keys on possession date. Wow. Wow. I mean, this is not a cheap investment either. We're talking generally well north of a half a million dollars, no matter what you're buying. And to buy that sight unseen, there's a gutsy purchaser, Elton. Well, it certainly is. But, you know, with, with tools such as Google Earth, where you can you know zoom down to the street view and yeah, yeah. see the neighborhood and, and the backyard, Google, and then virtually, you know, see it. Uh, also, realtors are using tools such as FaceTime. You know, on their iPhone, walking through the home uh, virtually with their with their potential buyer gives great confidence to the seller as well, so that they know it's being handled in a safe manner. And so, it's all working together to really aid this entire marketplace. Yeah, well, and it's uh, and uh, so uh, as far as wild predictions, you're just not going to agree with any of them. The pendulum is not going to be swinging too dramatically in 2021. You know, the, the core economy is still stable. And when we look at the house buying demographic, those jobs and situations, uh, you know, salary levels and that has stayed strong, especially if you're in the high tech industry at this point. The, co- the pandemic has really aided that type of uh, uh, employment career right now. So good news all around in that regard. Interesting stuff. Elton, we do appreciate this analysis, especially the opportunity to take a look at the province rather than just our portion of it. We always appreciate your joining us. It's a a moment of calm in every appearance you make. Our best wishes to you and your family for a wonderful holiday season, and we'll look forward to resuming our conversation sometime early in 2021. 
Absolutely. Same to you and all your listeners. There's Elton Ash, the Regional Executive Vice President for Remax Western Canada. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.